This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And the Braves lead 3-0 here in the third. There's the 2-2 pitch. Dansby, a rope to deep left field. That one's rising. Kiss it goodbye. A two-run bomb by Dansby. And it's 5-0 Atlanta on the strength of two tape measure shots. One from Jorge, one from Dansby. And those are the two men who hit the big home runs the other night. 0-2 on the way. Chopper out to Dansby. Dansby throws to first base. Is this happening? It is. The Atlanta Braves are world champions. The Atlanta Braves have won the 2021 World Series in six games over the Houston Astros. Pure euphoria down on the field. This is what dreams are made of. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, November 4th, and we have a World Series champion. The Braves beat the Astros. Braves have their first World Series win since 1995. We are hurtling into the offseason. Matt and I are going to spend a little bit of time today reviewing the end of the World Series. We're going to talk about the fact we actually do have news already in the offseason, um, big news about a National League catcher. I'm, of course, talking about Tucker Barnhart being traded to Detroit. I guess we'll talk about Buster Posey retiring, too. Uh, look at the qualifying offers and then um, kind of see where everybody stands entering the offseason. Matt, well, let's start with the Braves here. It, I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this. So what they did was sort of unprecedented, right? In the sense of how far behind they were, losing their best player. And everybody knows the stories about trading for a whole outfield and all this. Are there any like great things that you can take away from them for other teams? Because I feel like baseball is a copycat sport and teams are looking at like what the Giants did this year and teams have looked at like what the Rays have done in the past. Do you look at the 2021 Braves and say there are lessons learned for other teams? I think that the, the big lesson is in what they did at the deadline, not in terms of like that it was anything incredibly creative or mind-blowing, but it was just like, hey, there are places for us to upgrade. We might as well try, especially since we're not going to give up anything. And I think actually some of the narrative around the Braves trade deadline has gotten a little muddled. Um, I saw a couple of being like, the lesson for this is, you know, go for it at the trade deadline. The Braves didn't really go for it at the trade deadline. Going for it would have been trading for Chris Bryant to play right. left field, you know, like, or trading for Starling Marte to play center field. Like, or, or Rizzo and Joey Gallo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or Trey Turner and Max Scherzer. Right. <laughs> so they didn't do that. That said, I mean, they were, they were giving regular at bats and we talked about this on the podcast at the time. And I liked their deadline at the time because I actually thought like it wasn't worth it at the time. And I'll admit I was wrong about this. I didn't think it was worth it for them to go for it. I was like, you know what? Acuna's out. Soroka's out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is going to work for them this year. 
So like it's not worth them giving up any big prospects to to make a run. But the fact of the matter is they were giving at bats to like Abraham Almonte and um, hey, Orlando, and, and Orlando Arcia in the outfield. So it was like it actually wasn't hard to upgrade from that. And the upgrades they did were basically just taking on taking on modest payroll on guys with expiring contracts. So it was yeah. like that's like that to me the lesson is like there's ways to sort of like give yourself a fighting chance without a like giving up a lot or just punting the season. And I thought they did a really nice job of threading the needle there. I think that's a, a great point because like you look at the Dodgers trading for Scherzer and Turner and obviously they have Turner for next year as well, but they paid a lot to do it. You know, Caber Ruiz is one of the most highly regarded catching prospects in baseball and Josiah Gray is a well-regarded pitching prospect. The Braves didn't give up that much for these guys. And I, I think you're right. Like if that's a lesson finding, let's say not superstars, because you can't obviously predict that Eddie Rosario is going to go off like that, but finding competency in places you don't have it is not expensive or difficult and is always advisable. Um, I, I want to talk about one other thing. We're not going to do rants on this show today, but I have like a mini rant about the World Series. So the big story coming into the World Series, I think, was about the two managers, right? Dusty Baker and Brian Snicker. They're 175 years old and they're the oldest school guys. And Ron Washington is on the bench, you know, or our third base coach for Atlanta as well. And like, you know, credit to that because they, they reminded us that you know, you don't have to be like a 35 year old nerd running a baseball team and you can still do really well. But I think that got pushed a little bit too far when you look at how the Braves actually played this year. Like we talked a lot about in mid-May, they started shifting out of nowhere. They shifted more than almost anybody else. That was hugely successful. They hit the ball in the air a lot, right? They out-homered the Astros, what was it, 11 to two, I think. They had the second lowest ground ball rate in baseball this year. Those are like extremely modern ways to win. And I don't think necessarily that, you know, they, the managers lost like their old school way. I just think that they were able to take what they know has worked for many years and did a really good job of melding it with this new school thinking, which is really what everybody's trying to do. Because even when you get into like the pitching decisions, there's nobody on earth who thinks either one of these two guys were like puppets for the nerds in the front office. Like there's just absolutely no way. But they took what, you know, they have seen over decades in baseball and applied some of the numbers that we know make sense and turned that into winning baseball. I thought that was super cool. Definitely. And uh, exactly like the old Dusty Baker, it's like, it was hard to imagine the ways, you know, he, he, he managed his pitchers at the time. When you think back to 2003 Dusty Baker, when he was basically just, you know, he got roasted for, you know, leaving in Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood too long and how he not just hurt, it made them ineffective, but also they maybe jeopardized their careers because they got hurt and all that stuff. And, like the 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 change, the adaptation for him is actually it's 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 impressive. Um, you know, for the Astros in general, my takeaway was kind of like there's not that much. To, I mean, it's hard to fathom that no one other than Jose Altuve hit a home run for the Astros yeah. in the series. Had, you mentioned two. That was it. <laughs> you mentioned the eleven to two. Like it's like you know you can't predict baseball season. Like that is. Literally, like I don't want to say it's literally unbelievable because I have to believe it, but it's it's hard to fathom. If you had said before the series that only one player on the Houston Astros would homer in this series, you would not believe it. Um, Yoran Alvarez was he had two hits, he was wildly ineffective, and that's basically it. I mean, credit to the Braves. To be clear, I'm not saying like oh the Astros the Astros choked. The Braves. I had someone say this to me: the Braves were not the best team, but they played the best when it mattered, which is usually what happens for the champion. And cr all credit to them.
Yes, I was thinking about that. Nobody, I don't think even Braves fans really think that they were necessarily the best, the deepest, the most talented team, but they got hot at the right time. And it's funny, if you go back over a couple of weeks, if it was, let's say, the World Series of mid-September, well, then the Cardinals win the World Series. And if it was the World Series of late August, well, then the Blue Jays win the World Series. And again, hey, credit to the Braves because they did it where other teams didn't. Um, but I, I I think it's just kind of funny to like think about what we have learned from this. The last thing I want to say about this, and I promised myself I would not like get dragged down into this. And yet here we are anyway, Jorge Soler hits this home run and it's like an iconic home run. You know, it's not necessarily Bill Mazeroski winning the world series, you know, on the hit or like Joe Carter. Right. But I think this is going to be one of those home runs you see replayed a lot. And it went and it was tracked at 446 feet, which was well-tracked and no problems. Everybody lost their minds about it. And I get it right. Huge moment. And it went out of the ballpark. And has everybody forgotten that Houston's left field is like 305 feet away from the plate? I looked it up. That ball crossed the fence at like 340-ish feet away from home plate. So it went more than 100 feet after that. And it's the World Series. Like I was super uninterested in getting to this distance conversation. But since we have our own podcast, I guess I guess it is to do that. It, 446 was perfectly reasonable. And if you're actually interested, go look up Fernando Tatis. I think it was earlier this year. He hit a ball almost exactly the same spot that Soler did. Do you know what the tracking was on that? 448 feet. So I had to say it just because like, it's so short. Like, come on. Oh, my, my, my point on this, and I'm, I'm with you. It's, I'm sort of like, I guess we've been having this conversation for like five years now. So yes. I understand I'm work out of work. It's, it's funny to me to see the same people on Twitter who are saying like, we need a robot strike zone now being like, I don't believe that 446. Right. Like, if you want the robot <laughs> right. strike zone. You got to believe it's like the same technology. It's all working off the same stuff. <laughs> I saw someone say a couple people, well, why don't we put a chip inside the ball like in other sports? And it's like, what do you think StatCast is? It's not a chip in the ball, but it's cameras. It's like, it's the same idea. What do you think is happening right now? If I've learned anything about home runs, it's that people don't actually want the right number. They want it to match what it feels like. And that ball felt like it was about 595 feet. So congratulations to the Braves. We will take a quick break and we will come back and look ahead to the offseason. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The runner at third. Posey does have the green light. Hits that one hard into right field. That is way back and goodbye. Buster Posey. A two-run blast. And the Giants are on the board first. Has moved over to second base. And Posey dumps one into right center. A base hit. Wade will stop at second. A walk and a single. And the Giants have two on here in the sixth inning. That hit by Posey now puts him at the top of the list. The most hits in Giants postseason history. 54. We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and there, surprisingly, has already been some news about the offseason, a couple of roster moves. And I guess we should just quickly address the elephant in the room. We all know that this winter is going to get kind of uncomfortable around December 1st. We don't know what's going to happen. There's not really much to do except kind of business as usual 
until there's reason to do otherwise. And there will be moves this month. There already have been moves and news. Uh, qualifying offer decisions are due. We'll get into that. There's already been a trade. But I think most importantly, Buster Posey retired yesterday, or at least it came out that he will announce he's retiring. He's had a really interesting last couple of years. Obviously, phenomenal run in San Francisco, member of the three World Series teams, Rookie of the Year in 2010, MVP in 2012 after coming back from that you know devastating leg injury. Uh, kind of declined a little bit. In 18 and 19, it's just okay. Then last year, he didn't play at all. He opted out because of the pandemic and because uh, he and his wife had adopted twins. And he came back this year. And for all the things that were amazing about the Giants this year, I don't think anything stood out to me more than 34-year-old Buster Posey having his best season in like six years, making the All-Star team, hitting 304, 390, 499. It's one of the most impressive comebacks I think I've seen. And now he's gone. And I don't know how surprising this is. Like, it always felt to me like this was a possibility. But this is a, a huge blow for the Giants as they try to, you know, repeat what they just did. No question. I mean, there's, I couldn't really foresee Posey repeating what he did this year. That said, there's reason to believe he showed that he could still be a very valuable player. So for a Giants team that already like that had some questions about it and some key free agents, there's, you know, there's already a lot of skepticism of like, well, can they do this again? Uh, especially when you factor in some free agents and now there's like another big hole on the roster and there aren't really any notable catchers on the free agent market. So it's going to be pretty hard to replace him. I guess they're going to probably rely on Joey Bart and hope that, you know, I guess he was the number two pick a couple years ago. Um, he was a very high draft pick a couple years ago, can, you know, fulfill some his promise and, and fill that void. But f- from a Giants roster perspective, uh, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's funny to see. So Posey hasn't even officially made this announcement yet. And already the drum beats are, is he a Hall of Famer? And my opinion has generally been, unless it's like, top level poo holes Miguel Cabrera kind of guy talking about this like the day after he retires is probably not the best time to be objective about it but I I had I think something of a different um, viewpoint that I wanted to get your opinion on Matt every year uh, for the last couple years I've kind of written up a story for the site about you know which hall of famers will you get to see you know live and in action for the upcoming season right so I did it uh, in February of 2021 and I was like you know Trout, Pujols, Kershaw and Scherzer, these guys are definitely going to be in the Hall of Fame. You'll get to see them play this year. That's super cool. And I had Posey and Joey Votto uh, kind of grouped into what I called the late career strong cases, where I didn't think they were necessarily slam dunks yet. And they said, if they if they give you a little more, then maybe that'll push them over the edge. And Votto was fantastic. And now I think he's definitely going to be a Hall of Famer. And I was thinking about this with Posey, because I, I do now think he's going to be a Hall of Famer. And I'm a little conflicted with myself because I didn't really think that heading into the year. And then he was great. But should I let like 113 games change my mind about his career? That's kind of what I'm going back and forth on because I didn't before. And now I do think it's a Hall of Famer. It's, it's, it's kind of a tricky one. It seems like the, the, the dialogue today is, oh, he's a Hall of Famer, no question. And I mean, I think there's a chance that both you and I might get a chance to vote for him yeah. um, or, or not vote for him, as it were. Um, I don't know what year you get to vote. I think I'm I'm like I'm still like seven years away, so it's possible. I'm not sure he's going to get in first ballot or or not. I am two uh, years ahead of you, so I got in in 2016, but I can't remember now if that means like before or after 2016. So. But regardless, but so it, he's interesting. So I'm like I have now I'm like I have to take note of the players who retire. Like oh, I might actually get to you know vote for this guy one day. Um, here's the thing: my gut says yes, he's a Hall of Famer. 
but precedent isn't necessarily that kind to like his, you know, if you just go by kind of by stats, like to me, the interesting comparison is, is actually Jorge Posada. Um, they have almost identical career wins above replacement via uh, per uh, baseball reference. And I'm not saying that Posey doesn't have a stronger case. I think he does have a stronger case, but Posada got basically no support. Like Posada fell off the ballot after one year. It was one and done, which is in some ways is actually kind of surprising um, in retrospect, although it was, it was like one of those eras where it was like, it was 2017 where it was a stacked ballot. So it was just like, it was almost impossible <laughs> for anyone to make any, you know, I think people were like, you could have voted for like 18 guys in that, you know, that he was, he finished 19th on the ballot. The people above him were Sammy Sosa, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Jeff Kent, Fred McGriff. Point being though, he got basically no support. Um, almost identical wars. A big part of the Posada case is, oh, he won a lot of rings. Well, that's a big part of the Buster, Buster Posey case as well. Posey does have the MVP. That's one of like the the the, the difference makers in his favor. Uh, Posada's highest finish in MVP was third, which is actually higher than I thought. He finished third in 2003. So that's kind of notable to me. So, similarly, Thurman Munson, another kind of player with that kind of um, uh, resume of just like kind of consummate winner, leader of a team. He did not make the Hall of Fame via the BBWA. Granted, it was a very different era and like the, the voting people, there's a, a way, I think there's a way more nuanced process involved now. So I think Buster Posey would, will get in and I have no issue if he does, but like the precedent isn't actually that kind to his stat line. I think um, the awards, MVP and Rookie of the Year and being part of the three World Series teams will push him over the edge. Here's the other thing I was thinking about. I'm not ready for this generation of players to be old enough to retire. <laughs> so he turns 35 in, in March. So he's 34 years old right now. And if you think about his contemporaries of like the guys who came to prominence at the same time, most of them, you know, some are still playing and the ones who aren't um, either kind of faded away due to injury or performance. So, you know, Prince Fielder, uh, Matt Kemp, those kind of guys. Here's some of the names in the, uh, the first round of the draft when he was drafted in 2008. Now I should caveat here. He did come out of college. Some of these guys came out of high school, so they were younger. I accept that, but think about some of these names who were drafted that same year and tell me how you would feel if they announced their retirement today. Eric Hosmer, Garrett Cole, Jake Odorizzi, Lance Lynn. Those guys cannot be old enough to be retired. <laughs> it's not okay. I get it. Some of them are high schoolers. It's not the same. I understand. Aaron Hicks was in that draft. How, how are we to this point? Uh, yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I, I actually covered it. I covered Buster Posey in college, you know, so that's how I'm starting to feel, feel old. Super cool. All right. Well, let's stick in the NL West for a second. Um, the Padres are shaking things up. Uh, Jace Tingler got let go. Bob Melvin is now the new manager, which I think was kind of surprising to a lot of people. It doesn't say great things about the direction of the Oakland A's, which I guess we can talk about as well, but this seemed like the absolute perfect fit for the Padres because they underperformed. Yes, mostly. But I also think we didn't give enough uh, credit. Credit's not the right word, but you know, late in the season, they were so desperate for starting pitching that they had to go dig up Vince Velasquez and Jake Arrieta and give them eight starts. I don't know that any manager is going to be able to overcome that, especially with how good the giants played in the same division. So I'm not necessarily defending Tingler, just kind of pointing out that they are still a very talented team. And Bob Melvin's coming into a pretty good situation here. And he, you know, had a really good run with the athletics, um, 11 years there and you know, won 853 games. They also hired a new pitching coach, uh, Ruben Diabla from Cleveland. 
he was in that organization for 21 years and he's incredibly highly regarded. If you think about the Cleveland pitching factory over the years, right? Like Bieber and Clevenger, and Quantrill and Savale and Plezak and all these guys, they all point to Niebla as one of the main pieces that pushed them forward. So you put these, you know, these new coaches here who are very highly regarded and you put it on, you know, you still have Tatis and Darvish and Snell and Machado and all these guys. It's not hard to see San Diego turning this around quickly. No question. I think that, you know, when, when Tingler was let go and we talked about this on the podcast, I think that it was probably, you know, I think I said this at the time, kind of the extreme example of the, the most extreme example we can find of a front office picking a guy that they were confident they could work with. Right. But in this case, it was literally like AJ Preller's buddy from the Rangers. He, you know, he never really, he'd never really managed above, you know, in, in a high level of the minors. He didn't have any big league experience. He hadn't played in the big leagues. So this isn't like, you know, the Yankees hiring Aaron Boone, a guy who actually had some gravitas in the clubhouse by virtue of being a respected player and being around the major league game for a long time. This was kind of an, a no name who was brought in as buddies with the, with, with the GM. And I think that like, it's hard, you know, the Padres particularly, the Padres may have the most, I don't know if like when you combine like star players with big personalities, like they have one of the most star-studded rosters, if not the most star-studded roster in baseball. Cause even guys like, you know, Eric Hosmer, who isn't a star player, he kind of is a star presence, you know, personality. Like he's, he's famous and he's got a big contract. So you think of, you know, Tatis, Machado, Blake Snell, Yu Darvish, Hosmer. Like it's, it's a lot of big names and it's like a lot of personality. And I think that's really tough for someone like, you know, Tingler to come in and, you know, the, the Padres overperformed. I shouldn't say overperformed. They performed very well in 2020 during the pandemic. And Tingler, I think he finished second in manager of the year, but it was like a 60 game season. Everything was on Zoom. Like the media part of the job was so different than it was over the full season this year. So then you go to Melvin, who basically is like one of the two or three most respected managers in the game, who has a long track record of taking teams and having them overperform expectations. And this just seems like a, a huge win for the Padres. I agree with you totally. And it also seems like it's now or never for AJ Preller, right? Because I'm trying to think how many different managers has he been through there? He came and Bud Black was already there and then he let him go. And they had, you know, Dave Roberts for one game who they didn't retain, which doesn't look great now. You know, Pat Murphy for the end of that season. And then it was Andy Green, Tingler, and now it's Melvin. And it, I don't think there are too many GMs who get to hire another manager past that unless things go well, right? <laughs> that's that that's that's a very good point. I mean, and even also going into next year, like they have to feel pretty good, like vis-a-vis like the Giants and you know what's going on with the Giants right now. Like, you know, Posey retiring is good for the Padres, right? You know, like you know, Gaussman and, and Belt possibly signing elsewhere. I doubt Belt will, but Gaussman might. And like all the free agents the Giants have in their pitching staff, like that's good for the Padres. They should. They were expected to be better than the Giants this year, and they were very well set up again. And I also could see them, you know, they're going to get Mike Clevenger back, and he's going to be reunited with his old, old pitching coach. And that could be a, that's a, I mean, that's a huge X factor. It's hard to know what to expect of a guy coming off. Was it, was it TJ? Did he have TJ? Yes, Tim Jones. Um, it's hard to know a guy's first full season coming off TJ, but we know the upside is there. And I would not be surprised if they go out and bring in another free agent starting pitcher to, you know, fortify that staff. So, like, they're definitely I, – I, I agree with you. It's like a very much like now is now moment for the Padres. 
Uh, I actually want to get back to the Giants uh, in a minute when we kind of go through where the teams are situated. But first, let's get to some uh, immediate business. The qualifying offer is still a thing, you know, no matter what happens with the situation for the rest of the winter. Qualifying offers still have to be given out. Just like the briefest reminder of what this thing is. Uh, When a player reaches free agency, a team can offer him one year deal worth the average salary of the highest 125 players in baseball. That is $18.4 million dollars. This year, I think the teams have to do that by uh, sometime on Sunday. And then players have 10 days to accept or decline. If they take it, great. You come back for one year and 18.4 million, which is what Stroman and Gausman did last year. If not, they head off into the market. They're a free agent. And then uh, their team that had them gets free agent compensation. So this graphic, has been going- graphic, graphic compensation. Excuse me. Yes. And these this has been going on for what since 2012. Most guys don't accept it. Right. 96 players have received it. Only 10 of them have accepted it. Although, like I said, Gosman and Stroman did it last year, you know, betting on themselves because, you know, Stroman didn't really pitch in 2020. Actually, I think he didn't pitch at all. And Gosman didn't have a great year. So that's where it goes. Um, the important caveat here is you cannot get one if you've already received one. So Stroman and Gosman and Kenley Jansen and a couple other guys who have had it before can't get one. And you can't get one if you were traded this year, if you didn't spend the whole year on the same team. So like the entire Braves outfield outside of Acuna, all the Cubs have got traded, you know, Bryant, Schwarber, Baez, Rizzo, all those guys. If you got traded this year, you're free and clear. And there's always a couple of guys at the very top of the market where it's like, yes, obviously we're going to give you one because there's no way you're going to come back for one year and 18.4 million. You know, Freeman, obviously, Correa, Trevor Story, like some of these guys. We should talk about Chris Taylor for a second because I feel like nobody agrees with me <laughs> that he's going to receive an offer and then turn it down. And I'd like to state my case, and then you can yell at me, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> Chris Taylor, I think, indisputably had a very good run with the Dodgers, right? They got him for uh, Zach Lee in like one of the heists of the absolute century, you know? And over the last like, five years, since he broke out in 2017, I guess, um, he has not only been a good hitter, although he has, but he's been incredibly versatile, right? He's played all over the field, made the all-star team this year. You know, he's about 15% above average. Here's the reason why I think, first of all, the Dodgers will clearly give it to him because they'd love to have him back. You look at what what was a weakness for them this year. It was bench depth. You know, they missed Enrique Hernandez. They would miss Taylor if he's gone. And you might think to yourself, well, then, of course, he'll take it because he's not going to get 18 million per. I agree he's not, but it doesn't matter. He's going to be 31 years old. He's coming off the All-Star game. This is his best chance to get a multi-year deal. And before you respond, Matt, I want to give you a comparable player here, Ben Zobrist, who got four years, $56 million from the Cubs. He was already about to be 35 years old. And at that point in his career was a second baseman corner outfielder. Didn't really play shortstop, which Taylor can. Didn't play center field, which Taylor plays very well. If I'm Taylor, I'm not coming back for one year. This is my time for a multi-year deal. You make a, a, a decent case. Um, and I will not be surprised if he rejects it. I'm just not certain that it's a no-brainer that he reject that he rejects the qualifying offer. I think that recency bias is very much a thing, especially for a player who's on the other side of thirty. Um, you're going to put more weight on like maybe a, a sign of decline. He was really not very good in the second half of the season this year. I know he had the big homer of the wild card game, but he had a his line was two twenty three, two ninety, four nineteen in the second half of the season, which is you know not very good at all. So I think there's probably some concern in in the around the league right now of like is that a is that a sign of 
a little bit of a decline or is it just like one of those things a couple months and he'll he'll still be good? I wouldn't be shocked. I could see him also being a player who um, I think there will be some group of players who signed before the collective bargaining agreement ex- expires, maybe thinking like, hey, who knows what the 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 landscape's going to be after an agreement comes, if things will change at all, and how that's going to affect, you know, the players. Almost certainly the top the top guys, Correa, Simeon, are going to wait. But I could see there's a, probably a, a, the tier below them who I could see maybe I'm going to hey, there's maybe an offer out there. I'm not going to wait. I want to get some security. And I could see him being in that group. I think Zobrist is a very good comp. And it's, you know, he may say, hey, I'd rather have, you know, four years at 12 per year or whatever than one year at 18.4. And I couldn't necessarily blame him for, for that. I think that you, the point you made is right. He's not going to get anything close to 18 per year as an average annual value. So it's a matter of like what he thinks he could get on a multi-year deal. Yeah, the list of guys I've got here, uh, getting it and rejecting it. Freeman, Correa, Story, Simeon, Corey Seager, Taylor, Kershaw, Robbie Gray, Justin Verlander, and John Gray. Any Any disagreements there? I mean, I think Kershaw is interesting in the sense that like he's, I don't think he will get 18 AAV at this point, considering the injury history. That said, he may just want the flexibility of being able to choose his don- this destination and take a you know a, a two or three year deal somewhere, maybe, maybe possibly with the Dodgers or you know it's assumed I think it's either going to be the Dodgers or his hometown team, the Rangers, if he signs anywhere. So yeah. I could see like I don't think he'll get that in AAV, but he might just want the flexibility to decide, knowing that he's already earned you know whatever 200 million in his career. Yeah, I should also point out that the teams have a deadline to offer it on Sunday, but doing that does not restrict them from then coming up to a different contract agreement. You know, you could offer him the agreement and then 20 minutes later say, actually, we just signed a three-year deal. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. You can exactly. totally, you can totally do that. Um, there's a couple guys with opt-outs. Nick Castellanos did opt out. Uh, I think it's clear he will receive one and reject it because otherwise, why would he opt out? JD Martinez has not announced his opt out yet. I think the same thing will happen. Nolan Arenado has the right to opt out, but it seems very likely he will not. Um, so those are the ones to watch. And then I think there's like this group in the middle where I think it's likely they'll receive an offer, but it's not clear what will happen. I got five guys here. Brandon Belt, Michael Conforto, Noah Syndergaard, Carlos Rodon, Eduardo Rodriguez. I think it's likely all five receive an offer. I think we both agree that Brandon Belt is going to go the Brandon Crawford route and sign like a two or three year deal instead to remain with the Giants. Um, the, The Mets guys are fascinating to me. I First of all, who sends emails in the Mets front office right now? Like who who is the person who turns on the lights in the morning? I kind of don't know, and they have to figure that out by Sunday. <laughs> yeah, I th- I think that Michael Conforto and, and Noah Syndergaard, I think Conforto will definitely get the offer. I think there's a small chance he accepts it. I mean, like it's just some of it's ego, right? I think you know there was reports that the Mets offered him 130 million or something last last spring training as part of a contract extension, and this like this this was not like firmly reported. It was sort of like, hey, here's the ballpark. And he should have taken that. <laughs> exactly. Because like, he's not going to get anything close to as a free agent. So it's a little bit of ego because if he goes out on the free agent market now, he'll probably get something more like, you know, four for 70 or something like that. If that. He had a bad year. He did have a very bad. That's what I'm saying. So like there's – I think there is a chance he accepts it. Um thing about with Noah Syndergaard is – he will definitely accept it. And I'm actually not sure. He's He said, I hope I get it so I can accept it. And I'm not sure that's actually, it sort of depends on, it, it's it's hard to know if it's a good decision or not because it's unknowable if the Mets are willing to kind of blow past the, the what is c- the current, you know, uh, luxury tax threshold. We don't know what it might be after a new collective bargaining agreement. Like if they're willing to blow past it, they definitely should do it. If they're trying not to, 
then I'm not sure they should because like, what can you really expect from Noah Syndergaard? He hasn't pitched in two years. Like it's could be a lot of money for a guy who may, who even if he pitches may only give you like a hundred innings. Like it's hard to really know um, what, what, what the ceiling is there. I think if they could come to an agreement of him where it's like, Hey, you know, maybe a two year deal or like a one year deal with like a really lucrative team option, basically saying like, we're all incentivized for you to pitch well and stay healthy. So like, let's maybe let's like a two year deal where first year is a guaranteed $10 million, but the team option for year two was like $25 million. Right. So it's like everyone you know, quote unquote wins in that scenario. Cause like if the Mets want to pick that up, it must've mean he pitched really well. Does that name, make sense? Name one Mets starting pitcher you feel good about for 2022. <laughs> it's not even uh, a joke question. It's a real question. Oh uh, yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, feel good about i think i feel good about Degrom, but you know obviously there's still the huge question marks and yeah that's that's really that's really it i mean i feel good that Degrom will be very you know highly productive because he's fantastic do i feel good that he's going to be healthy after three weeks of the season like not really stroman's a free agent uh taiwan walker had such a bizarre season where he was very good in the first half and almost unpitchable in the second half you know didn't uh didn't david peterson break his foot just like walking in the clubhouse <laughs> it was it was a weird he also i mean i'm not sure i feel like he's been so like kind of uneven in his career thus yeah. far you know he's kind of like you know probably his ceiling is probably like number four starter to begin with so yeah um rodon's really interesting too um because of you know he has no track record until this year and then he pitched well and then he was banged up a little bit and so it's like what's what what's the what's the long-term projection on rodon uh, I I feel like given the, the 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 state of the starting pitching market, which isn't it's it's kind of it's a weird one, right? Like there's obviously Scherzer there who will get a, a huge like three year deal, and then I think the next best sort of bet. Tell me if you agree with this. I kind of think that Stroman is going to be in high demand because durable competence is really valuable right now, and I feel pretty confident of of all the pitchers on this list other than Scherzer of. 150 innings pitched and an ERA of three and a half or lower, I feel most confident in him of the group that's out there. I would take Gausman over, over Stroman. Interesting. I, I agree with you that Stroman is reliable and that is valuable, but uh, I, I think teams like ceiling a little bit too, and he just does not miss bats. And maybe if you put him in front, you know, the Mets infield defense actually ended up being pretty good last year, you know? So if you had him in, I don't know, St. Louis or something like that, That'd be great. You cannot put him in front of an infield defense that's not strong. That actually is what hurt Eduardo Rodriguez a little bit too. You know, he had a 474 ERA. But if you look at any of the underlying indicators, like expected ERA or FIP, it was more like 330 because the Red Sox defense was just generally terrible. So he's someone I think will receive it and then decline it and go out there. And then the the last four guys I want to talk about could totally go either way. Like I don't have a great feeling on any of these guys. Anthony DiSclefani, Alex Wood, Rysel Iglesias, and Steven Matz. I think Steven Matz will not get it. I think DiSclefani and Iglesias will get it. Um, and Wood will not will not receive it. Um, it's Iglesias is tough. I mean, if he doesn't, he's oh, one of those really? guys who like, he, if he doesn't get it, he'll be in very high demand. If he does get it, teams will be like, eh, are we really going to give up, you know, draft pick compensation for a reliever when we could probably find, some, you know, find, find, find next tier guys that might be able to, replicate his performance i think the giants will offer at least to one of these guys maybe both just because like i don't know it's they, they'll want they'll, they'll be willing to run the risk of one-year deals knowing that their pitching depth right now is not very good and also 
happy to take the, the draft pick conversation compensation if these guys sign elsewhere. Alex Wood's the kind of guy, if he has the qualifying offer attached to him, I just can't imagine there'd be much market for him at all. He would never sign, so he would have to take it. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll look at where the teams stand, and I do want to talk more about the Giants. One-one pitch. Flies into left center field. Well hit back at the wall. It is gone. A home run for Freddie Freeman. How about that? And what might be his last at bat for the Atlanta Braves. He's just made it seven to nothing with a shot into left center field here in the seventh of game six. He's unbelievable a home run in what could be your last at bat. I know you don't want to hear that, but what does that mean to you? It means it's going to be a nice offseason that I hit a home run <laughs> in my last at bat. Um, you know, it feels good. I'm just glad I was able to contribute. How much do you want to be back here? I, a lot. Um, as you said, I've been in this organization for, since 2007, so I don't know anything else. So um, we'll see what happens, but I'm, I'm going to soak this one in. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We are into the offseason, and would you believe it or not, there are already free agents. Clayton Kershaw is not a Dodger. Freddie Freeman is not a Brave. Buster Posey very clearly is not a Giant. It's weird to think that these guys we just saw are already off their teams, which means it's a good time to sort of look at where the teams are right now and where they're projected to be as we head into the offseason. And I think a good way to do this is to look at the Fangraphs depth charts, because they're updated um, pretty much in real time. So right now, the projected first base starter for Atlanta is Johan Camargo. Not actually how it's going to be in April, whether that's Freeman or somebody else. But hey, you got to start somewhere. Right? Alex Anthopoulos looks at his roster today. He doesn't see Freddie Freeman on top of it. But, and you do that, and you combine it with 2022 projections. And all of a sudden, you have a, you know, a pretty good indicator of team quality and the Dodgers are at the top. The Yankees are next to them. I think you can quibble with some of this stuff because like a team like the Mets always does well by a view like this. And then they just always seem to be less than some of their parts, just like all the time. It's fair to say that maybe the projections don't do a good enough job of handling teams like the Rays or understanding like how well the Giants overperformed this past year. So like you can talk about all that, but I do want to talk with the Giants because this is going to be the one where I think people are going to freak out a little bit. They are ranked as the number 22 roster heading into 2022 between the Marlins and the Orioles. Now, Matt, I think you and I would both agree they are going to be better than the Marlins and the Orioles next year. But also, if you look at their roster right now, Buster Posey's gone. Brandon Belt is not on their roster. A lot of the guys who left are kind of old, like Crawford and Longoria are not young. And they have zero starting pitchers, not even one, who have had one full successful season under their belt. Now I know Logan Webb was a breakout star and I have very high hopes for him next year. Do you remember that he got optioned to the minors as recently as July 10th? Cause I kind of forgot that watching him in October. Here's what the giant starting rotation looks like right now based on the fan depth charts, Logan Webb, Sammy Long, Tyler Beatty, Sean Hegel, and Matt Frisbee. That's not going to get it done. And that's why they're ranked number 22 right now. They're they're very interesting um, in in the, in this exercise, you know, like and seeing them again, see, seeing them also right below the not just the Marlins but also right below the Mariners is also interesting because the Mariners are another one of those teams I think that's going into next year where it's kind of like, what do we make? What do we make of this team? Right, like, you know, that's that's a team that that had um, 
90 wins. They had more wins than the World Series champion Braves, <laughs> which is kind of hard to believe. But I want to go, we'll go back to the Giants for a second. They're obviously, I mean, we know they've got a very smart front office, a resourceful front office. It'll be very interesting to see what they do in terms of the the um, the free agents they target and the kinds of players they go after. Notably because the place where there's the mo- the easiest place to make an impact on free agency is the one place where they're kind of most set, which is shortstop. So it's like, okay, well, there's one place they're probably not going to be going after players. I think there's a decent chance they bring Chris Bryant back um, in some capacity. I think that's, that seems like a very real possibility. But they could go in a lot of different directions, and uh, we'll kind of have to wait and see. I think uh, job number one is to re-sign Brandon Belt, which I think they'll do. Job number two is to retain at least one of their departing starting pitchers. I think they'd love to bring Gausman back. Uh, maybe it's just Di Sclafani. Maybe it's both. Job number three is to go out and find a, an external starting pitcher. And they never really seem like the team that's going to go out and pay like, you know, for a, a Scherzer. I mean, maybe they will, but they always seem to like finding the next Gosman. I don't know who that's going to be yet. Um, there's a couple other teams that stood out to me here. Let's go all the way to the bottom of the list. It feels like the Tigers kind of have that smell, <laughs> you know, like, hey, they played pretty well over the last couple months. There are a couple of games over 500. Their young prospects all made it up to the big leagues. I mean, at least in terms of their pitching, Spencer Torkelson is not far away. Riley Green is not far away. They actually already made a trade. They traded for Tucker Barnhart from the Reds. Look at you. And they're ranked 30th on this list. I don't actually think they're the weakest roster in baseball. There are several teams I would put below them. And yet you can't totally ignore, you know, what the projections are saying, because there's obviously a lot of thought put into them. And so I'm starting to wonder now, um, even though we all think they should go sign Carlos Correa, and maybe they will, are we maybe pushing the Tigers ahead of where they actually are? It's it's really I mean the thing is it's like the, the it's the starting pitching that's such a question mark right because they have all these guys with big pedigrees you know Casey Mize and Matt Manning high draft picks who have not really been that great at the major league level yet or even or even the minor league level um, in Matt Manning's case so um, I think there's you know there's there's probably just some belief within the industry okay these guys have pedigree they'll figure it out and they'll at least be you know serviceable to good major league starters. But the projections don't don't see that, right? And similarly, like there's some of their hitters who are kind of like surprisingly good last year. It's like, hey, this guy's kind of good. Like Akil Badu. I mean, right now his projection for next year, and I'm not saying this is like I believe this. I'm not. I'm like this is one of those that's like, oh, like is basically a, a replacement level player, right? Like basically zero zero point one WAR. So it's they're they're an interesting team. I mean, I I'm excited about the Padres because I think the combination of Spencer Torkelson. Tigers, and Tigers. Tigers, sorry. I think the Tigers are interesting because the combination of Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green is one of the most exciting combinations of prospect position players in one organization at the same level in a long time. Like the idea that like these guys could maybe both be on the opening day roster or debut within a week of each other or on the same day sometime early in the season is very exciting. And they both seem like they could be kind of just, you know, capital G guys um, even very early on. That's the excitement for me about the Tigers is those two guys of suddenly being like, to suddenly go from to just add two kind of all-star caliber players, talents on your roster at one time as rookies is is really exciting. Obviously, that's a, that's a lot of expectations. I mean, Torkelson was the number one overall overall pick, and I think I'm just kind of I don't want to say irrationally high on Riley Green, but for some reason he just feels like he has a little bit of just that je ne sais quoi for you know 
I think it goes back to spring training when he had the hardest hit tracked ball that we've ever tracked from a Tigers player since that cast began. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I think ever since then, and then I just tracked him all year and he had a very good year in the minors. That's my excitement about the Tigers is those guys. And obviously the the projections are not going to pick up on that, especially for 2022. I do want to talk about the Mariners for a minute because you brought them up. It's really difficult, I think, for a lot of people to know where to start from with the Mariners. Like, are you starting from a 90 win team, which is super impressive? Or are you starting from the base of being outscored by 50 something runs, which is where they were? I, I think they've been pretty clear that they think they, their time is now to try to go out and, and make some moves. Um, it's very clear they need starting pitching. You know, Marco Gonzalez, Chris Flexen, Logan Gilbert are three good starters. They could really use an ace, but I'm going to toss out a name for you that I think is maybe the most aside from Correa and Detroit is the most perfect fit of player and team Marcus Simeon, right? This team's offense was not very good. And now Kyle Seager is gone and he had 35 home runs and you look at their infield. Ty France uh, had a pretty good year and he can play first or third. Abraham Toro probably plays third. He can play second, but he'll probably be a third baseman. Um, and JP Crawford, I'm not so sure about his bat, but he's a very good defender at shortstop. I don't really want Dylan Moore playing second base for me all year. I definitely need a bat. You probably aren't going to go out and sign like a huge contract for an outfielder because you've got Hanniger and Kelnick and Lewis coming back and, and Rodriguez will show up at some point and Taylor Trammell is still out there. You put Marcus Semi in a second base on that Mariners lineup and suddenly I feel a lot better about their chances. That's a very, very interesting fit. I, I, I like that. That, make, that makes... That makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm looking through their projections and you mentioned the outfield. And I think that's where you see that the big disconnect is the the projections are just not buying into either Kyle Lewis or Jared Kelnick yet. That doesn't mean they won't at some point. But like, you know, Kyle Lewis basically had a great 30 games in a, in a pandemic shortened season. Then it was pretty bad the last month of that season, but he was good enough that he won rookie of the year. Then he got hurt and barely played this year. But there's big questions about the swing and miss. And like, is he actually a star player or is he just like an okay outfielder? Kelnick was sort of the opposite. He was terrible out of the gate this year in 2021. He went back down to the Myers, came back up, showed some signs in the last month of the season. But there's still skepticism. It doesn't, doesn't mean they won't. They, 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 they won't end up becoming impact players. But when you look at the projections, you have to keep that in mind that right now the projections are not buying. And this kind of goes back to the Tigers pitchers too. Like the projections don't really care that they were, you know, high draft picks, you know, or they, they're like looking at, they're much, they're looking at their performance in the minors and their, you know, their performance in the majors and sort of trying to extrapolate on that based on their age and body type, et cetera. And so as of now, they haven't given the, the, um, the projections enough to say, okay, this guy's going to be, this guy's going to be um, a star player. It could happen but there's reason to be skeptical. There, There's one more team I want to talk about because I was surprised at how well they ranked by this. The number five ranking, the Milwaukee Brewers. And now they did win 95 games and the pitching is phenomenal. Everybody knows the, the starters and Hayter and Williams and you know they can just invent pitchers out of nowhere. But their offense was pretty weak. And if you look at what they've got going, you know, they could probably stay to get a first baseman to either replace or improve upon, you know, Rowdy Telez. I think you can actually stick with the other three infield spots, like Colton Wong's your second baseman. Willie Adamas certainly earned the starting shortstop job. And Luis Urias, who I generally have not been that high on, um, hit so well in the second half that I think you let him play third base next year. But then you've got a problem because you look at the outfield. Avisel Garcia uh, is probably going to depart. 
what do you do with the fact that Christian Yelich, Lorenzo Cain, and Jackie Bradley are all under contract and gave you almost nothing last year? I don't think you can just say those are my three starting outfielders, but obviously you're not going to bench Christian Yelich. I don't know. Do you do like a Cain Bradley platoon in center, which will still give you pretty good defense and try to add another big bat because the the lack of thump is what's holding. Yeah, they, they could really use a, 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 another outfielder can hit pr- probably preferably a right-handed hitter. You know, Avisel Garcia really kind of filled that void for them last year. I could see them bringing him back. I'm not sure I'd be as confident he can repeat what he did in 2021, but um, I think they'll bring in that 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 type of, that type of player um, would be would. Oh, Jorge, Jorge Soler. Jorge Soler. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just like eyeballing the the, um, the outfield list here. And it's, yeah, other than Garcia, it's like Peterson's a lefty, Conforto's a lefty, Schwarber's a lefty, uh, Rosario, he's a lefty, right? Like, and, yeah, if, like Chris Castellanos Bryant? would be a very good fit there. Oh, there you go. Castellanos would be a, a fantastic fit there. I could see that. Yeah, Castellanos or Soler, but someone like that, because you can probably you can probably give up on the defense a little bit just because Kane and Bradley are both so good out there, you know, and Yelich is, is competent at least. Um, but I could totally see them going all in on just like a big right-handed bat. And I think Jorge Soler is just a, an absolutely perfect fit there. Um, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. We will continue doing our show weekly. We'll see what happens with the rest of the winter, but obviously there's lots of baseball to talk about. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll see you next week.